I mean, the only thing I would say is that I don't think you can use any one of these red flags by itself, you know, to totally sink something. But I think the more of these that are present, the more worrisome, you know, the particular alternative and off-label treatment is. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. My name is Mike Stevenson, coming to you from St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm joined by my co-host in North Carolina, Jeremy Holden. Hello, and how are you, Jeremy? Doing great, Mike. How are you today? Not bad. Not bad. You know, I I generally look forward to every episode we record because uh, we're fortunate to have some really amazing guests here on Connecting ALS, but I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little more amped than usual for this one, because anytime we get to speak with Dr. Richard Bedlack, I learn something new, usually many new things. And this time out, we asked him about a recent paper he helped publish around the red flags to be wary of in alternative or off-label products. Yeah, I was looking forward to this conversation too. And and as you alluded to, it, it did not disappoint. We have a piece up on ALS.org detailing some of the findings in this paper. But over the years, the folks over at ALS Untangled have noticed a pattern of some of the alternative off-label uses that they've looked into. There are some trends that they saw, and, and they just wanted people to be aware of some of the red flags. Some of those, if it seems too good to be true, maybe give it a second look things. And again, he, Dr. Bedlock really delivered on this conversation. He really did. One of the things I always appreciate is his ability to explain particularly complex science in an accessible way, a way that uh, even you and I can understand, Jeremy. So let's listen back to our conversation with Dr. Richard Bedlack. We are pleased to be joined on the phone this morning by Dr. Richard Bedlack, director of the world-famous ALS clinic at Duke University, a celebrated professor of neurology and the brain behind ALS Untangled. Good morning, Dr. Bedlack, and welcome back to Connecting ALS. Good morning. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, we, we so appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us again. And last time we connected, you gave us an excellent overview of where ALS Untangled was at and how things were working. And so I encourage our listeners to give that episode a go if they haven't already. We will link to it in our show notes. But today, we want to cover a topic that has been popping into the research news cycle quite a bit recently. I'm referring to off-label and alternative treatments. But before uh, Jeremy tosses you our first question on that subject, Dr. Bedlack, can you tell us how things are going in your world at the moment? Is the clinic operating at full capacity or are you still making some adjustments due to the pandemic? We're almost back to full capacity. So I've never seen anything change American medicine as quickly or dramatically as, as this COVID-19 pandemic did in a matter of just a few weeks. <clears throat> I mean, the entire medical system went from probably doing less than 5% of medical visits virtually to doing, you know, 99% of medical visits virtually. That's wow. That's astounding. It really is. at, At my institution, I've been doing telemedicine for more than seven years here, but, you know, there always were some things that held us back from being able to do it even more. And some of those things included like, you know, lack of any ability to get reimbursed. There were no billing codes that any insurance company had for doing telemedicine in the home. And so as a result, you know, it's the only the only people that could really do it were people that had a grant. Like I've had a grant from the ALS Association for several years that allowed me to do it, but most of my colleagues couldn't get those kind of grants. 
And then the other was many states had laws where you couldn't really cross into that state to see patients, even your own return patients, unless you had a license in those states. Mm. Very strange because from the beginning of time, we've been able to talk to people in other states on the telephone and practice medicine that way. But for some reason, if there's a video involved, the states see that differently. You have to actually have licenses in order to be able to do video visits. And you know, very quickly in the pandemic, those two things changed. All the insurance companies came out with billing codes for telemedicine in the home, and most of the states dropped their interstate laws. And so I think, you know, the inability to see patients, but also the, ch the massive change in infrastructure allowed all this to happen. The big question is, someday when this pandemic ends, will we be able to maintain those two key things so that we can always offer telemedicine in the home to patients. We've heard some speculation around that from some other folks. What's your sense about how much of the new gets given back versus this becoming the way medicine is practiced going forward? I think the infrastructure is going to stay the way that it is. I'm fairly certain about the billing codes. I'm not positive about the interstate laws, and that's probably some place where we need to put our heads together and figure out how we can advocate for that. The good news is there is a precedent, most people probably know, but the VA Medical Center, you know, from the beginning when we started doing telemedicine had an exception to these laws called anywhere to anywhere. So you, you could see, you know, any uh, VA patient in any state, no matter if you were licensed there or not, if you were a VA provider. And so if there's a precedent, I mean, we ought to be able to use that to change these laws and to be able to give patients you know, more options. I mean, most of my patients who live far away want this as an option, not just during the pandemic, but because unfortunately ALS creates some problems, some challenges for people who need to travel to see an expert. So this should always be an option for our patients. Yeah, definitely something to keep our eyes on going forward. And it will be interesting to watch as we do move to the other side of this, what changes and what stays and, and, and how medicine looks going forward. In the meantime, I wanted to talk a little bit about a piece that you recently published around some red flags when it comes to off-label or alternative uses of medicine. But I want to start kind of at, the, at that kind of basic building block of this and labeling of drugs. Can you walk our listeners through how that process comes to be, how, and you know, before we can think about what off-label is and what the red flags are, what's the purpose of a drug label? How does it come to be in existence? Many countries, including the United States, have regulations about what the owners of products can say you know, when they're marketing their product. And in fact, many payers have seized upon those to say, we're only going to pay for uh, a person who wants to use this medication for this particular indication. And of course, in order to be able to get a label from a regulator like the FDA, there's a lot of research that has to go into proving that the drug is safe and that it's effective for that particular condition. It's absolutely better than it was in the days before the FDA. I would, I would encourage people to go back and look at the way the United States was before we had an FDA and the disastrous things that were happening to people based upon completely inaccurate labeling of products. So things are much better now. Could they be even better? Of course. I mean, we were constantly trying to think of ways to speed along this process of drug approvals. I think the ALS drug development guidance that was published a few months ago, I think was a huge step toward you know, expediting drug development in this field and also making sure that patient perspectives are 
taken into consideration when regulators meet. So I think I think all that's going to be helpful, but there's always going to be a bar that has to be met, you know, for a product to be deemed safe and effective for a condition, it's going to have to meet certain standards. And I mean, I think that's good news for all of us. Sure, we'd like it to be faster and we're working on that, but I don't think we ever want to go back to a day when there's no regulation, when people can say whatever they want about a product and there's no way to know if what's on the label is actually in there, if it really is safe, if it really does anything for the particular condition. And interestingly, you know, in the past decade or so, with the growth of the internet, there has grown this entire industry around products like supplements that are not really, I mean, they're, they're generally regarded as safe by regulators like the FDA, but they're not designed to be marketed toward any specific condition. So that's why most supplements have like really vague statements that they make like for your health or, you know, for your well-being. They're not allowed to say, you know, slows the progression of ALS. At least they're not supposed to. Yeah, that's a really, really great point and a scary thought. You mentioned a time when there was no FDA thinking about how those drugs were labeled. So thanks for walking us through how that process works. When we talk about off-label and alternative uses, where does that come from? What are the what are the driving market or scientific influences that lead people to say, why don't I use this treatment for something else than what it was originally intended for? Well, it's, it starts with the fact that ALS and, and many other conditions are still, unfortunately, rapidly disabling and life-shortening. I mean, in spite of a, a hundred years of research in ALS, we still don't have a way to stop or reverse the disease. And so I completely understand, you know, why people would go onto the internet and try to find something that they could try. I mean, I think if I had ALS, I would want to try things. I think it's just human nature to want to try things, to not, you know, come home from a clinic and accept that you may be able to slow it down, but you can't stop or reverse it. That's just human nature. And, you know, on, on top of that difficult background, which is not just in ALS, it's in every, you know, uh, disabling, life-shortening disease, comes the internet, where really it is like the wild, wild west. I mean, people can go on there and say just about anything they want about a particular product. And, you know, generally, people who are selling supplements do not overtly make claims about them, but other people do. So, you know, alternative practitioners, for example, may make claims about the things that they can do for people with these terrible diseases. You know, people who are running special clinics like for-profit stem cell clinics in other countries may make extraordinary claims about their safety and efficacy mm. because many of those countries don't have a group like the FDA to hold them accountable. And it's, it's really difficult because the internet has got tremendous breadth. I mean, you can go on there and type in ALS treatment and you come up with millions of hits. Not all of them are alternative and off-label therapies, but I would say probably most of the things that come up when you search that are. And so you're going to get a lot of ideas. The problem is there's not a lot of depth to any of those. So you'll get a lot of ideas, but there's not a lot that's actually said about those things. And it's always difficult to know, you know, with what is said, how much is believable. It's like uh -huh. when somebody puts up a website that says, you know, we have a treatment that works for these 47 of the world's worst diseases. I mean, how do you know? Right. When I right. first came into this field, you know, 20 some odd years ago, I, 
I didn't have any background in this. I had never had anyone in my family with any of these kinds of diseases and didn't have a lot of experience taking care of these kinds of diseases. And so this was a surprise to me. I mean, looking back on it, I should have expected this, but I think back then, I mean, the internet was still evolving too. And so it's really over the first decade or so of my career that it just hit me like how this is a perfect storm. I mean, you have you have people with with these terrible diseases and then you have this internet that's got a tremendous amount of information and misinformation. And so how do we reconcile all this? I mean, people are going to go home and go on the internet and look at these things. How do we reconcile it? And in the beginning, I would just ask my colleagues, like, what are you all doing about this? Like, I've never, I've never had any training in how to handle this. And there, there kind of were two very popular responses. One was, I just tell them it's all garbage. I just say, this is all garbage. If it worked, you know, we would, we would be telling you about it. It would be approved. And the other is, you know, well, I just tell them, well, you already have ALS. Why not try it? And I just thought neither one of those felt right to me. I don't, I mean, I feel like if patients and families spend all this time doing research and they come in with a list of things that they're considering trying, then we kind of owe it to them to use our years of you know knowledge and training and experience to help them understand which of those things might make sense to try and which probably doesn't. The problem is that's a really difficult job. <clears throat> you know, it, most of us are stretched pretty thin right now in in medicine and science, and you know it it takes thirty to forty hours of work to thoroughly review one idea, in my opinion. And so you know if your patient comes in and says, "I've been thinking about these five things." That's one patient. That's potentially, you know, 150 hours of research to really thoroughly investigate all those. How can somebody possibly do that? And so that's when I came up with the idea, you know, for ALS Untangled, like what if we crowdsource this? What if we get a group of doctors and scientists from around the world that are interested in helping patients with this, with these types of decisions? Could we build like some standard operating protocols? You know, could we crowdsource this and, and start putting out articles and then like the next time somebody says, well, I'm, I'm new to ALS and I want to know about curcumin. Oh, well, guess what? You know, we wrote an article about that last year and here's, mm. we spent, you know, 30 to 40 hours writing this and here's what we learned. So take it home, read it. There's a podcast you can listen to if you'd rather, but then if you have any questions, come back and talk to me. But this is like a group of people who thoroughly researched that question. And the red flags piece kinds of come out of that experience, if, if I'm reading it right. So can you talk a little bit about the idea to say, hey, these are the red flags, right? Where did those red flags come from? And, and talk to us a little bit about what they are, what people need to know as they start down this path of investigating or researching potential alternative treatments. Yeah. So the the one problem that we really haven't been able to solve with ALS Untangled is these reviews just take time. I mean, if we're going to do a good job, you know, it just takes time. And each time we finish one review, we get four or five new questions. So like, we're not really, I mean, yes, we've published, I think, 57 reviews, you know, but that's over 11 years of work. And, you know, the list of things that people have asked us about is now, you know, well over 500. So clearly, you know, we're, we're losing ground. We're not like, we're not making up ground. I mean, yes, we, we continue to answer questions, but it seems like there's always new alternative and off-label treatments that are on the internet that people want to know about. And so how do we help them, you know, make decisions about those kinds of things? So what I said was, you know, we've been doing this for quite a while now. 
You know, there's over a hundred of us from 11 different countries that have been working on this together. Have we learned some lessons? I mean, could we come up with a list of things that seem to be associated with, you know, the less promising treatments that we reviewed and allow people to use that list to review a new treatment themselves before we get to it? So it, it's not quite as thorough as a full ALS Untangled review would be, but at the same time, it's better than saying, well, it's on the list and you know we'll get to it at some point. You could say, well, let's look at this together and figure out how many of these red flags are associated with this particular website, clinic, treatment that you're considering. So that's why we did it. And, and we also know, I mean, outside of ALS, I hear you know, that, that patients are, they're just the same. I mean, they're having the same issues. And there's, to, to my knowledge, nothing like ALS Untangled that's out there for any other disease. And so this list, you know, not only helps people with ALS who are considering something we haven't reviewed, but it helps people with all other, you know, difficult, disabling, life-shortening diseases who are considering these products. ALS Untangled is, of course, among the best parts of the internet that we're discussing and a really great example of the power of crowdsourcing. As the site has increased in popularity over the years, Dr. Bedlack and, and more and more people are learning about it and more and more people are interested in it, I'm sure you're just getting so much feedback and so many inquiries. You, you mentioned time being the, the consistent problem. What other adjustments have you had to make to how you're running ALS Untangled and, and, and the sort of information that's passing through there? Have you have you made many changes to the original formula? We have. I mean, so we've tried to make it much more objective. You know, like in the first few years, we had a rough idea of what we wanted to do, but, you know, we really had no path to follow. Like, you know, a lot of times when you're, when you're trying to research something, you know, you look and you say, well, how do other people do this, you know, in other fields? And you kind of, you know, modify their protocol to your needs, but there was nothing out there like this. And so this is something that we had to invent from scratch. And it, you know, as we got more and more experience with it, we said, hey, you know, maybe we want to, you know, have these sections in each paper. And, you know, maybe we should hang this entire review around some sort of grading system. And so like originally we thought, well, maybe we'll do something like a Yelp, you know, for each product. How many stars are we going to give it? Five stars, four stars, three stars. And then we said, it's, that's maybe a little too simple because there's different things about different products. Like one product may have amazing mechanistic plausibility. Like we just finished writing a paper about a supplement called vinpocetine, and we gave it an A for mechanistic plausibility. It has all these mechanisms with all this great, you know, preclinical data. It's even got some data from human studies where, you know, oxidative stress biomarkers were changed. So all these very promising mechanisms by which it could work. But then, you know, you look at the case reports, and there's a few people online saying some sort of vague things about what it might have done for them. Most people are saying it didn't do anything. So we got a bad grade for that. And so how do we reconcile that? Like, okay, if it gets, you know, one star as far as cases and it gets five stars as far as a mechanism, how does that average out? Like some categories should probably be worth more than others. Trials, for example, clinical trials we think are the most important of all the categories, but how much more important are they? compared to case reports or, you know, compared to preclinical data? Are they a hundred times, you know, more important, 500 times more important? So we decided to just, you know, make a table and we said, you know, these are the five categories that we think we should be looking at. And they include mechanistic plausibility, preclinical data, case reports, trials, and risks. 
And we decided that within each one of those categories, we would have very specific grades where there were cutoffs. So, you know, if you, if you want to get an A, there's a certain, you know, level of evidence that you have to have in that category. If there's a little less, but it's still good, you get a B and so on and so forth, all the way down to F. And then there's some products where there's just not a lot of useful disclosable information. Either we can't get in touch with the people who are selling it, we can't find anyone who's tried it. There's been some products where we've been threatened, you know, for asking questions. So, hmm. you know, we just give we just give those products a U in that category, which means, you know, unknown. We just we just can't find anything useful and disclosable for this product for that category. Thinking back to the red flags for a moment, and, and we can share the, the full list in the show notes so listeners can go through and, and check those out. But for somebody at home who's maybe seeing on social media a potential alternative treatment and, and wants to kind of set their own radar, what are some of the red flags that you came across that you thought it was important for people to know? Yeah, I mean, I think they're all important. And I, I think we should go through them and just talk a little bit about them. So, you know, the first one is a large out-of-pocket cost. I mean, somebody who's got a new therapy and wants to charge you $100,000 to come and get an injection of something that they're calling stem cells, that's a problem. You know, we, I think we all have this belief that the more expensive something is, the better it is. Not necessarily. I mean, one of the most expensive alternative and off-label treatments that we ever came across in 11 years was something called the Stowe Morales Protocol. And this was a concoction of so-called stem cells and a lot of supplements. And it was being promoted by a so-called Dr. Larry Stowe, who was practicing in Mexico. And this we actually found out about from 60 Minutes. They actually reached out to us and said, you know, we've heard about this clinic. We see what you're doing. We want to know if you want to partner on this. You critique the science and we'll find out about the person. And so it turned out that the science was was terrible. We couldn't find any evidence of any sort of plausible mechanism. We couldn't really find any decent preclinical data. We couldn't find any person who tried this and had any sort of benefit. There were no trials. We had some you know concerns about some of the risks that might be associated with it. And then sixty minutes you know did their thing and found out that this wasn't even a doctor that. He had fabricated his medical degree that was on the wall. He had never attended the institution that he said he attended. He told patients he was working with all these different American institutions and the FDA, and none of them had ever heard of him. So it's that old adage that you know, just because something costs more doesn't mean it's better. You know, when companies are considering giving patients access to the products that they have in development, what's called expanded access, there's rules. You know, the FDA has rules about what they can charge. They can only charge what it costs to make the product. Anything more than that is deemed to be unethical. I mean, I personally don't think that someone should be making huge profits off a product that we haven't even tested, that we don't even know, you know, is safe, much less helpful. Right. So I think that's the first red flag that people should watch out for. The second is what I call too good to be true. I mean, somebody who's got a therapy that they're advertising as effective for a large number of the world's worst diseases, which seem to have very different causes, you know, it just it just doesn't make sense. Like we talk about in the paper that we were reviewing uh, bee venom for ALS, and if you go on the the beat one of the bee venom websites, you know, there's a, there's a huge list of things on there that are all supposed to get better with bee venom: arthritis, gout, bursitis, tendonitis, Lyme disease, <laughs> MS, lupus, shingles. Bell's palsy, neuropathy, sciatica, carpal tunnel, fibromyalgia, Raynaud's, chronic fatigue, 
psoriasis, eczema, asthma, ALS, cancerous tumors, melanoma, carcinoma, bone fractures, herniated discs, wow. on and on and on and on. I mean, there's got to be 30 or 40 things there. And there, there's no clear reason why one treatment could possibly work for all those different problems. So that's a, that's a huge red flag. Like we talked about before, you know, when regulators are looking at a product, they're expecting that the company is targeting this product against a very specific condition or a very specific symptom. And so they give it an approval based upon the data in that very specific thing. It gets an indication. No, I don't think anybody who ever, you know, came to a regulator and said, I'm going to, I'm going to get a label for this product that it works for 45 different conditions. I mean, I think the regulators would shake their heads and say mm -hmm. it's, it's impossible. So that's the second one. The third one is a lack of any kind of safety and scientific oversight. And we've talked about, you know, how important the FDA is to keeping people safe in this country. And, you know, unfortunately in other countries, there, there may be nothing similar that is in existence that's watching over patients who are being exposed to some of these kinds of things. We actually critiqued another uh, stem cell clinic that was in uh, Monterey, Mexico. And that clinic actually did publish their data, which is something we're going to get to that a lot of these folks don't ever do. So we applauded them for that. But, you know, if you just read the abstract of their paper, they said, you know, we did this small study and it looked like really promising and it was perfectly safe. So then you read the paper, and the first thing that stands out is there's no table of adverse events. Like in every study, there's always adverse events. Mm -hmm. I mean, even in, even in the placebo group, people have adverse events. Now, there's oftentimes some difficulty figuring out, are these related to the treatment or not? But there's always adverse events, and there were, there were none reported, which is the first problem. The second is that in the text of the paper, they mentioned that one out of the 10 people who got this stem cell transplant died in the oh. first 10 days of the procedure. Well, I mean, a, a treatment that's associated with a 10% risk of death in the first 10 days, yeah, that probably wouldn't be considered safe and well tolerated by most people. So it's just another example, like, you know, if, if, this, if this study had been done in the United States and, you know, they were looking for a label, the FDA would not, not let them say this is mm -hmm. perfectly safe and well tolerated. They would have to say, well, if, if this is all you got and we're gonna approve it, Sure. Then it would have to say it carries a 10% risk of death so that right. people know what they're getting into. And the next one is consent. And again, that, that we already sort of touched on that. You know, almost every civilized country has rules about informed consent and research. I mean, patients should know what they're getting into. They should know, you know, the potential risks and the potential benefits of what they're getting into. And, you know, they should have intact decision-making capacity and their decisions should be voluntary. They shouldn't be like forced into anything. So those are the three parts of informed consent. And unfortunately, a lot of the things that we see, a lot of the clinics that are selling experimental products, the patients don't seem to have any kind of consent process. So it's not, it's not clear that patients are being given all the information. It's not clear that some of the folks who are going there and spending money you know, really have intact decision-making capacity you know, we do know that some people with ALS have trouble with what's called frontal temporal degeneration. And so it's really important, you know, that somebody sit down and go over all the risks yeah. and benefits and make sure that patients understand it before mm -hmm. administering a treatment. The next one is a lack of any kind of reasonable mechanism by which this might help. So, I mean, you know, 
we we continue to learn things, but but there's some things that are just sort of so outrageous that it's you'd have to rewrite all the laws of physics and biology to accept that they're real. You know, we came across something called Marty Murray's method, and this was a person whose theory about ALS was that people just got themselves into a bad way of thinking, and that caused their body to start to fall apart. Wow! And if he could just coach them into a better way of thinking, they could heal themselves. Well, there's there's no precedent for that. There's no precedent for being able to think your way into a neurodegenerative disease or think your way out of it. It's it's not clear how that would work biologically. And same thing with energy healing. There's no known biology by which a person could have energy come out of their hands that would heal a neurodegenerative mm-hmm. disease. A lot of times the problem is even more subtle. And this is where I think, you know, it's so important that that patients and families be really open and honest with their healthcare team in, in talking about what they're considering because sometimes you'd actually have to be a scientist to figure out what the mechanistic problem is. Like we did a review on something called sodium chloride and we found you know, that there was a trial going on of a particular product called NP001. But at the same time, a lot of people were saying on the internet that there were oral forms of this that worked just as well. And it turns out these oral formulations, they were rapidly neutralized by saliva. And, and therefore, you know, the active ingredient that would work on macrophages could never possibly get into the brain. So there was no mechanism by which oral sodium chloride could ever help a person with ALS. And again, that's one where you'd, you'd have to probably have some help from somebody who's got some knowledge mm-hmm. and experience in all this. Outcome measures is the next one. A huge red flag, in my opinion, is when a clinic just wants to take your money, give you a treatment, and never see you again. And this is actually you know, one of the most obvious problems with a lot of these for-profit stem cell clinics that say that, you know, that they're making people better and there's never been any side effects. And then you find out, but they never see people again. They take their $20,000, they inject them, and the people go on their way. Well, how do you know if it's working and if right. no one's having any side effects if you never see people mm. again or talk to them again or measure anything? And that's you know, a very, very common thing that the people selling these don't actually ever do any measurements. Sometimes the measurements that are done are just really flawed. Like for example, one of the stem cell clinics we came across, which was called the XL Center, I remember they had this graph on their on their website and it said, you know, here's what happened to people with ALS who came to our center and there were different categories. They got a lot better, they got a little better, they didn't get any better, they got worse. And almost everybody was, they got mm-hmm. a lot better or a little better. I said, well, that's interesting. I mean, what are, they, what, what are they actually measuring? What they were doing is calling people on the phone about a week after they came back from the clinic and saying, hey, put yourself into one of these categories. <sighs> well, I mean, there's a, there's a potential problem with that outcome measure. There's something called a placebo effect, especially you know, for a, a treatment that's expensive, where you have to travel halfway around the world to get it, where you have to have, you know, a bone marrow biopsy and a spinal right. tap, which are painful, and where you're measuring something totally subjective early on after the person gets the treatment. So, I mean, that that would never be accepted as anything scientifically valid when, when trying to apply for a label for a product. Which is the next one. I mean, I, I pay a lot of attention to anecdotes. I mean, it's that's how I found out that some people with ALS get better, the so-called ALS reversals research I'm doing. But if that's all you got, if your entire evidence that your product works is anecdotes, 
that's a bit of a problem. And, you know, the reason I say that is that anecdotes are hard to validate. That's part of what takes us so long with ALS Untangled is that if somebody's in a chat room somewhere and says that they tried something and it made them better, well, we need to find that person. We need to try to find them. We need to try to get them to send us their medical records. We need to review those, make sure that we agree with the diagnosis, make sure that, you know, we agree that something objective improved, that that it wasn't just, you know, there, there actually are examples of people just totally fabricating anecdotes to help sell their product. And we would just mm -hmm. want to make sure that doesn't happen. The next one is, you know, the qualifications of the person who's, who's offering the treatment. You know, this is not an absolute, but in general, if a person offering a treatment has a track record of training, publications, presentations, grant funding, finding other good treatments that work, well, it's a lot more likely that something that they say about a new treatment that works is going to be accurate, as opposed to someone that has never had any training in that field, any experience with grants or peer review. So just to give you an example, going back to Marty Murray's method, I mean, Marty Murray said he had a treatment that worked for ALS. Marty Murray was trained in political science and economics. He worked as a financial analyst. He had no scientific background. So the idea that he you know, has found an ALS treatment that works, it's, mm -hmm. it's a stretch. I mean, it wouldn't be something where we totally rule it out. Of course, we looked carefully at it, but it's, it's just more of a stretch. And you know, sometimes, again, this one can be more subtle. Like we looked at a mineral cream, which was called Axillion, and there was a scientist associated with the product, but the scientist was a botanist. He studied plants. All of his research and publications were on plants. And so, you know, how that research would allow someone to understand how to you know, do clinical trials and figure out if a treatment worked for ALS, it's, a, it's again, yeah. a bit of a stretch. And then I think the last one is another one that um, it's subtle, but people who, proponents who are portraying themselves as victims and advising that patients divorce themselves from mainstream doctors, I think is a red flag. You know, it's, it's something that we've seen before. There's a book out there called When ALS is Lyme, and a whole section of it is devoted to this conspiracy that the authors say exists across all doctors and nonprofits and pharmaceutical companies and governments mm -hmm. to keep people sick. I mean, it's, it's so outrageous. It's so implausible that there could be potentially millions of people involved in this conspiracy and not one of them you know, had the slightest shred of decency to blow the whistle on the whole thing. It's just, it's, it's beyond, yeah. beyond imagination. People saying that, you know, that their submissions to meetings and, and journals are always rejected, that they're, that they're being ostracized. Not true. I mean, the scientific method, one of the great things about it, it's really straightforward. It's open to anyone. It just asks you to make an ob observation, come up with a theory, design some experiments, interpret them, report the results at a meeting or a journal. You know, nowadays there's so many journals, including including journals that mm -hmm. are entirely internet-based that are free to publish in. So there's no reason why a person, you know, could not follow this this pathway and actually do research on the thing that they're believing is real. So that's 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 the list that we have. I, I do want to say, you know, I, I don't think that most of the people that I've met that are selling these products are bad people. 
You know, there's, I think some people have the idea that these are snake oil salesmen and they're just trying to make money off folks who are desperate. That's not the impression that I get at all. The impression that I get is that a lot of these folks just don't really understand science or just don't have any interest in, you know, trying to prove that their product works. Mm -hmm. A lot of them just totally believe mm -hmm. in whatever they're doing. They're what I call true believers. And so, and many of them have been happy to partner with us to try to uh, get some ideas about how they could prove to the world that whatever it is that they're working on, you know, really does make a difference. And as you know, with ALS Untangled, some of the things that I personally have found most promising, I've gone on to do trials in. So for example, the supplement Lunison, mm -hmm. I thought that was very promising. I spent a couple of years raising money and getting all the approvals and I did a study and unfortunately it didn't work. But I'm going to continue to do that. I mean, I, I'm going to come at each one of these things with an open mind. And if it looks promising, I'm going to try to help their proponents design a study to test it. So like the next one that we're going to study is Theracurmin, a form of curcumin. And so we're going to, we're going to keep doing that for the ones that are most promising. Thank you for, for walking us through that list of red flags and really kind of all the layers that are there. It's, it's so complex when you get into the world of ALS research and a population that you mentioned is so desperate for a new treatment and for anything that might make a difference. You can see where the waters are muddied and, and people may go astray. I, I wanted to ask, in addition to resources like ALS Untangled and being able to read the journals and the articles like the one that you recently published on the red flags, is the best place for someone or a family living with ALS to start just with their primary care physician or their neurologist to say, hey, you know, I, I read about this thing or I came across this article and I'm just curious if you know anything about it and if there might be any red flags there. Is that the best, the best question to start with? Yeah, and I, I personally think the best person to be able to help is the doctor in the ALS clinic. So this is why, you know, when, when people reach out to me and they say, I was just diagnosed, my wife was just diagnosed, you know, what do we do? I say, I think the most important thing is to find a good clinic, you know, where you have a doctor who's passionate about this, who wants to help, a team that's that's there to support folks. And you know, there's a great list of those clinics around around the world, really, on the internet and specifically in the United States on the ALSA National website. But yeah, I, I definitely think, you know, that patients and families should work with their ALS teams, should partner with them throughout the disease on every option, including these alternative and off-label options. I think more and more folks now are are open to hearing about these and trying to guide people. I think the the old days of the very paternalistic doctor who said it's all garbage or you know, the very sort of hands-off doctor who said, why not try it? I think there's fewer and fewer people acting that way. I think more and more folks are, are recognizing that patients want to partner with us and that we have some tools that we can use to help them. That's great. That's really great. I want to point out that in addition to this article, which we will link to, there was a, a blog post put out by the ALS Association's website that adds a few wrinkles to the conversation, and we will link to that uh, for more info as well. Thank you again, Dr. Richard Bedlack, for thoughtfully answering our questions on a tricky subject and for giving some great advice uh, to those out there seeking potential new treatments for ALS. My pleasure to be with you. Thank you again to Dr. Richard Bedlack for that illuminating conversation, really unpacking that journal article that he co-authored. Again, you can find more information about those red flags at als.org, and you can find a link to that in the show notes. Really great conversation. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. That's going to wrap up this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to Connecting ALS wherever you get your podcasts or at connectingals.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter to give us feedback. 
ask questions, or just to say hello. This week's episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thanks again for listening. We will connect with you again next week. 